The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I am your host, Jess, and today I am joined by Mia. Thanks for joining us, Mia. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks for the invite. So Mia, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am 29 years old, recent grad student from the university here, and um, I am a passport specialist. Oh, awesome. I've never heard of that job before. Tell me a little bit about that. So essentially, I look at, um, well, I look at applications and, um, well, there's several, there's several things that are required to get a passport, right? There's a citizenship identification, picture of the money, and essentially, um, I look at all of that. Uh, well, there's more, there's like background, like they have to see if you, they have to see if we owe money to this um, IRS or like child support. I mean, there's like multiple factors, but essentially, I look at the documentation and determine whether or not you're, um, you qualify for a passport in depending on what I find, you know, you get a passport, you don't. When people apply for a passport, do you get to see where they're planning on going? Well, yes, yes and no. Sometimes like people are, they're very wise. They like play, they plan months in advance. You know, they, you know, like I'm going to be, I'm going to be celebrating my 50th anniversary. I really want to go to Prague, right? You know, and they're really smart about it and they plan, they save all their money. And so then um, I just, you know, I see their application and it's easy peasy, but then you have the individuals who are like, you know, I just bought, I spent $5,000 on a ticket to go to Prague and my passport is, and I haven't had a passport since I was five years old. And it's like this weekend. It's like tomorrow. You know what I mean? So it's yes and no. Like, cause when it's that serious, I have to actually see their ticket in hand. And you said you're a recent graduate. What's your degree in? I graduate with a master's in social work and master's in public administration. Oh wow. A double master's. Yeah. So, cause what happened was like, I, gra- so I graduated my undergrad and like with my, with, with the bachelor's and social work, like really all you can do is like a case manager, if not, um, you know, paperwork, you can actually do therapy with the bachelor's. So I decided to go back, um, to get my master's and, but then I decided to apply to a second program because my thought was, what if I don't get into one program? I, the other program will be my back. Well, congrats on that. That is quite an accomplishment. So what got you interested in social work? Um, so social work. I, um, so in 2008, I was hit by a drunk driver. So I was, I was the past, so it was the 4th of July, right? I was, um, I was sitting in the, the car of one of my good friends and, um, we had just like, you know, we just saw all the fireworks. We had just, um, you know, rode all the rides. I, I specifically remember I threw up my hot dog. <laughs> um, so that's what I was laughing about, um, on the way, on the drive home from all of that excitement. And I was laughing so hard that I didn't even see the driver that hit us from behind. I just remember that I was flying out of the window and I landed on the edge of the hill, the edge of a hill, and I went rolling all the way down. At the bottom of that hill was a railroad. That's what the right side of my head landed on. My skull cracked open. I dislocated my jaw, I shattered my right cheekbone, and the muscle that moves my right eye was severed. Um, to my, the friend who was actually driving the car, he actually went down that hill to take me off of the railroad. Um, the doctors to save my life there, they put a metal plate in my head. There's a metal plate over my shattered cheekbone. There's a wire holding my jaw together and they rebroke my nose. After all of that, um, you know, after all that cutting and um, fixing, I, my body shut down. I fell into a coma for almost two months. 
And while I was in that coma, they told my, my grandmother that I'd be lucky to wake up because of the severity of the injuries. And if I did wake up, I'd spend the rest of my, I'd be a vegetable or I'd spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And, but my grandma said, you know, she's a kid. You can't say that to someone this young. She asked for a second opinion. I was transferred from, because the accident happened on the border of two states, you know, happened on the border. Um, not, not, you know, not a foreign country, but like the border of two states. And so they flew me to the University of New Mexico where they actually did the surgery. And my grandma asked for a second opinion. So I was flown to my home state where I was, you know, I met with another team. Well, I was still in the coma, but I, they, I went with another team of doctors who gave my grandma the same diagnosis. You know, there's nothing that they could do. Um, my grandma, she asked for, at that point, a third opinion. I was taken to a different hospital where the, I had, like, another team. And that's where I finally woke up from that coma. Um... That the day I woke up, I was frantic. I was I tried pulling all the the wires. I tried pulling all the wires out, and um, they actually had to sedate me. When I woke up the second time, the neurologist she was sitting there, and she actually explained like everything that happened. The so the medical term is so what happened was the right side of my skull cracked open, so the left side of my body is weaker. The medical term is hemiplegia. Hemi meaning half, plegia meaning weakness or paralysis. So the right side of my head was turned. The whole opposite, the left side of my body is weaker. I have, I had no use of my left arm, and I couldn't use. I had very limited use of my left leg. And the muscle on the left side of my throat, it every time I swallowed like regular fluids, it went straight to my lungs. I um, they decided so. You know, the doctor said, you know, we, she asked. You know, she let me know that I'd, I'd, there was nothing, they'd, like, I'd spend the rest of my wheelchair. Essentially, that, essentially, that was the diagnosis, right? And so I told my grandma, I didn't care how long it took, I wanted to try. And so then they gave me a team, a team of therapists. I had a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, and a physical therapist. Um, and, of course, a neurologist. And so I literally had to relearn how to um, put a shirt back on because I only had one hand, you know, I could only use one hand. So to learn how to put a shirt back on, relearn how to like, so to learn how to transition from my wheelchair, from the hospital bed to the wheelchair, or for like, from the wheelchair to the actual toilet seat. I had to relearn all of that, and like to learn, relearn how to feed myself, because like, the right side of the brain, like you know, the brain is in charge of all, all kinds of things, but like the actual right side of the brain, it's in charge of like perception. So like, like from putting like the judgment of like how how far away your 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 mouth is from like the actual spoon so like i would put like a fork and it was like not even near my mouth right because of that perception it was like so it was horrible so like i so like food all over my face right now but when i relearned how to to do all of that they discharged me and when my doctor when my, my neurologist discharged me she put a stack of gd books in my bed she said in your condition you don't send a chance at graduating from high school because before that, I had just finished my junior year of high school. Um, I and I told, I told, I remember specifically telling her, "Listen, lady, I didn't survive to settle for that." And I told my grandma, and how long it took. I wanted to, my, I wanted to actually graduate. I wanted to actually walk across the graduation stage, as unrealistic as that seemed in my condition. She said, "Okay," and so she actually took those books to the um, Goodwill. 
And so that's what I did. Um, and I told, and they actually let me go home to my house, to my home. And, um, but I didn't want a babysitter, right? Because I, I, I wasn't, I was confined to a wheelchair and I didn't want a baby. I didn't want anyone to stop their life to take care of me. So while everyone was at work, when everyone was at school, I actually took apart that wheelchair so that I could better maneuver it. Um, and first I had to teach myself how to stand back up because like you really have to transfer your weight from, so, you know, so it was really like, I had to learn how, so I relearned how to, I re-familiarized my, my, myself, my body essentially. And then, um, you know, I, I um, so I, I fell so many times that I remember like my teeth cutting into my, you know, into my, li my, my inner lip. And, um, by, but by the end of that, by the end of that month, I believe I was walking and, um, by the May of the, the next, the, the following year, I um, actually walked across the graduation stage. And along that path, like I met like a lot of people, a lot of people. And then I realized somewhere, someone is being told that they can't. And they're believing that diagnosis. And that's why I decided to be a, like a social worker or someone who would give that hand to someone, you know, that um, offer them the alternative. Man, that is a powerful story. What? did you feel like when you first woke up what were the thoughts that came into your mind how were you feeling well I was scared I was literally because like well I was scared and I wasn't scared because like my grandma was like literally sitting beside the, my bed and she was singing to me in our native language you know and so that was like calming but like what was scary is because like I couldn't breathe there was like a tube down my throat and I couldn't breathe and that was that made like that heightened the anxiety um, cause like I have, I have anxiety, like panic attacks, like from, from every now and then, but like that was unexpected, like just waking up, you know, out of nowhere. And so like, I, um, just that panic, I just, I was just panicked. I remember pulling that out and pulling all the, and like, they literally had to say me, sedate me. So that's, it was just fear, you know, just fear because like trying to pull out, like trying to pull out that big tube down my throat with like with one hand and my other arm wasn't even, it wasn't even like, um, responding to my you know what I mean it was just there it was just dead it was just dead weight and I just I, I was just panicked I was like I don't know what's going on so then once you learned what your diagnosis was and and started working through all the different therapies what helped you to keep going what motivated you how'd you cope um so in the actual hospital you know what they called they actually called me the girl with the music um I always I had like um a, a little stereo I know we I know they don't have them these days but I actually had a, like the, the stereo actually had like a cd player and my friend made me a playlist on like an actual CD. You know, they don't have those anymore, but they actually made me a, a playlist of um, of like some of my favorite songs. And um, I would literally just list like, you know, it would just bring me that comfort of who I was before and who I could still be. And so I used a lot of that. Um, and I actually started writing. I actually um, wrote a lot, journaled, you know. It was really, it was really a battle though, because like they, for some reason, they didn't trust me to have a pin. So I started journaling, and um, but there were moments there was like, like I remember moments when I was fresh, like really frustrated, um, just like depressed. You know what I mean? Because before that, before that accident, I was actually state champion. I did um, track and shot put in discus, um, and I was actually undefeated. And like, bef so being told you would never walk again, or let alone run, that was that like that like fueled or that fed into that depression that built you know from being you know what i mean from being robbed of the ability to walk or the ability to do things
And so I um I learned how to um I I don't want to say channel but like redirect that into like um music or like um writing. So you went from being a state champion athlete to like you said earlier having to relearn how to use your body. Yes. So what fueled your fire to get through that? I never allowed myself to give up ever. Just I mean, well no. I don't I do I don't know what it's like to give up is how I should put that. Um just because like where I where I um where I come from a lot of what you see there it's you know it's um it's defeat. You know what I mean? And I told myself as a kid that I didn't want that for myself. And so the back of my mind being you know what I mean, being told that you're gonna spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair, you know what I mean? And I even remember like the people from like the Social Security Administration they came and they asked me to sign some paperwork for me to get like um you know a disability and I was like no I'm not disabled you know I remember specifically fighting that and I, that's not what I wanted for myself and so that was always at the back of my mind is that there was um there's you know the concept of not being able to do something and having that um the determination or that potential to do something did you ever have a point where you thought about giving up yes um i remember like sometimes the like I remember, um, so, like, they actually put me, like, on an antidepressant. Um, they put me on, well, I was, like, several pills. I was, like, for a while, I was, like, I was in a blood thinner. And, you know, there's, like, I was, like, on all these things. And before that, like, I didn't take pills at all just because I didn't believe in them. And so then they put me on this little, this little pill. And then they said that would help with my emotions. But I'm, like, I'm not emotional, you know? I'm, like, what do you know about my emotions, right? And so, and that just made me, it just made me even, like, more furious that, like, someone you know, they weren't listening to me. They weren't asking me how I was feeling, you know? They were just assuming that because, like, I didn't want to eat or, you know what I mean, that I didn't want to leave my room, that I was depressed. And that made me mad, and, you know, I, that made me um, not even want to comply with their wishes. And and there were moments, there were really days when I did want to just not, that I, you know, I wish that I, um, that I wasn't there, that I had died in that car accident. Wow. What got you through those days? Mm, the sunlight so like being in confined being confined confined in like a hospital room or like even in my wheelchair because like because i said no one would know i don't want anyone to take care of me right so like those days i was literally inside all day um or like in my hospital bed like you know there's the hospital there's like the rooms are like um like seven door or seven window like there's a, a bed by the window and there's a bed by the door right so my bed was by the door so i didn't ever see the sunlight the first time i felt the sunlight after the accident i cried so hard and like and every time i feel like claustrophobic or like trapped i remember that sunlight and what does that sunlight represent for you hope or like the warmth or like my faith, you know, I, you know, because like for me, like if there's if there's like a God, that sun is my God. Because <laughs> because I mean, it's always it always makes me happy. Before your accident, you had mentioned a little bit about your childhood. Um, did you face adversity prior to that as well? Um, before the accident, I um, so the lady who gave birth to me. Um, she, so the, really, the only, the really, the only memory that I have of her is holding the spoon so that she could hold the lighter under it and get high. That's really the only memory that I have of her. 
Uh, my dad, he's from Mexico. Um, he's living here as an architect by trade. And so, um, so he had a work visa, but then, um, he's, he had to pay for all, like, the ladies' drugs, right? And so that fed into his money, and so he couldn't afford to reapply for his work visa. And he was actually deported when I was about five, maybe six years old. And so, if, like, for me, pain, that's, that's the first time I've ever experienced real pain. When your father was deported? When my father, when I was taken away from my father, or my father was taken away from me. And then from there, I actually, and so my first language is Spanish, right? Because, um, you know, that's my dad's book. And so then I ended up in um, in the child welfare system. So I was like, you know, when, um, I was in a group home, well, several group homes. I was in foster care. Um, and everywhere along that path, I, I met someone who was like, just, you know, they were just scum. You know, I met the men who, try, you know, with the, the dad, the foster dad who would sneak into my room at night. Or um, the foster mother who would slap me um, because, you know, I, w- I wasn't tall enough to wash the dishes, um, you know, because I was like six. Um, and everywhere along the way, you know, I just I just um, met all this, you know, all this, the, hor- the horrors of the world, essentially. And um, and everywhere, but everywhere along the way, I decided that I wanted to do so- I wanted to be somebody to help to stop that. I remember when I was a kid, I told myself that I was going to be a cop so that I could stop little kids from getting hurt like that. And then when I ended up on when I ended up with my in my grandma's care, eventually, you know, after being like bounced around from like, um, you know, group home to group home to five, you know what I mean? Um, I actually ended up my grandma's care eventually, and then I decided that I wanted to be an architect so that I can design and build homes, you know, in third world countries. I mean, it's it was always always something to help people, but yeah, I mean. I mean, now that I look back at it, it doesn't. I don't. I don't want to. I don't see it as being horrible. Just because it's my life, you know, it's, um, it's, I just, I mean, I mean, people, you know, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but I don't think that that's bullshit. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what shapes who we are and like to take away like those memories would take away who I am as a person. And so, I mean, I guess I did see tragedy before that accident, but like looking back, I wouldn't call it tragedy. Um, just like, you know, roadblocks from are like teaching moms to tell me who I am, to help me be who I am today. So before we started recording, we were getting to know each other a little bit and you were telling me that you're involved in some advocacy efforts? Yes, I do. Um, so yeah, well, they call me like a, mot- I, like, I don't even know how like it happened, but they sort of call me a motivational speaker. I was hit by an intoxicated driver. And um, and so that's what, that's like the ripple effect that of like to, of that led to all the other stuff. And for a very long time, I was very mad. I was very angry at the person who hit me. I had a lot of hatred toward them, you know. And but that didn't align with my as, with my beliefs as a as a, a Christian. You know what I mean? To hold on to the hate that didn't align with that. And so, and for then for that forgiveness process or that healing process, I decided to um, use that as a catalyst of change. So then I started taking, speaking. I started at my my high school when at my senior year. Just at the local, my local school there, and then when they, um, when the next school heard what I was doing, I was invited there, and then I spoke at every school in um, that school district, and then I was invited to a school like all the way in New York, um, you know, all the way across uh, from the Southwest, um, and they said they were going to pay for the flight, and so I decided to go, and um, and in that I just let you know, let them know the um, con- you know the the actual action. 
drinking or whatever they you know whatever whatever that is and the the potential consequence of um you know potentially killing someone or hurting someone um that could change you know that changes their lives forever and so i actually i've traveled around like several i mean like mo- most states have been to alaska um just um you know sharing that giving that hope and sharing giving that insight of you know this is the action this is what you, this is what you take away essentially you know because because like with um uh, because like i actually speak at um i had a you know there's this organization called mothers against drunk driving um it's, it was started by a mother who like lost her daughter to a drunk driver and nobody did anything about it so she did start this nonprofit, and i actually speak there on their victim panel every month um and you know, I speak to like you know forty, fifty people every month, and um, because like before, before the actual talk, um, they they show like a, they show like a, a slideshow about you know the statistics of like um, this is what it takes to get a DUI or like this is the cost. Um, I let them know, you know, this is this is where I was, this is where I am, because you know I was hit by drunk driver. You know, um, the choices that people make. Um, the choice that they could potentially make that would change someone's life for for you know forever, and um, so I I, try, I do that I um, that that is some, that's how I tie that together, and um, you know just um, taking that that piece of me that was impacted by the intoxicated driver and um, sharing that with everyone to help them see that um, that the the consequence the, the potential consequence of um, being impaired and driving at the same time. So you talk to high school students. Do you talk to um, people who have been charged with DUI? Yeah. So the people like for the people who attend those mothers against drunk driving classes, they're actually court ordered. They they have DUIs, and they're actually court ordered to attend those classes. Oh wow! So you're talking to people who have have been out there on the road behind the wheel. They're offenders. Like they they've, they have, some even have like multiple DUIs, and you know they're still like you know I'm gonna drink. I actually go before the actual talk. So that I can sit there and shake hands with every single offender to make sure. Sh- because, like, I like, because, like, statistic wise, um, I, I want to know that I'm making a difference. And so I make sure that I look at everyone's face so that I, um, if I ever see them again, then they didn't listen, you know? Or that I need, I need to say something more to help them listen, to help them understand the impact. It makes it a lot more intimate and personal that way. And then in the end, like, I say after to actually, because sometimes they'll pull me aside and they'll, um, they'll ask me questions, you know? And, um, and I just, I just have that just to be real with them, you know what I mean? Just to have them, because like I've gone to conferences and things, you know what I mean? People like, you know, they have like this very awesome person that giving, like giving a lecture or whatever. And then they leave like, you know what I mean? They didn't even stick around for me to ask a question, you know what I mean? And so I don't want to be that guy or lady. So, and I just be more, you know, I just be real with the person. What are some of the reactions you've gotten from people? Um, so I've noticed like, I mean, I've seen like grown men cry. I've seen like mothers cry, you know? Because like when I start, I tell, I say, I, I, I let them know. I, I say, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be real. I'm not, I'm not someone famous. I'm really someone just in your community. Because I had this, I had this, I had this one, one incident. Like, I was in, you know, I was in the fries food store and I had this person like taking a picture of me. They're just like literally taking pictures. And I was like, what is? I was like, I was looking like scanning my body. I'm like, is my zipper down? You know, I was like, what is going on here? I was like, is there stain in my clothes? And like I started freaking out. So then I went to the bathroom and I was looking in the mirror. I was like, what is? Why are they? You know what I mean? I didn't understand. And then I go back outside, I was out of the bathroom, that guy is still standing there, like, and I was so scared. <laughs> and then I, like, I was like, sir, what, um, do I owe you something? I'm like, what's going on here? And he's like, and he's like, you, ch-, he's like, you don't remember me, but he's like, you changed my life. 
And then I was like, well, "Sir, you're you're not you're you know what I, I'm not." I didn't I didn't understand. He was like he's like he told me the exact date, um, that he sat in on one of my talks, and he's all like, "I haven't touched a beer." Uh, he's like, "I haven't touched a beer since," or something like that. Oh wow! And like he was like crying, and I'm like, "What is you know what he was like on the side of the fries food store?" <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean it was like yeah and so like i that's literally how i start my lectures you know i mean my my talks you know i let them know i'm not i'm not someone famous i'm literally just someone in your community um you know so i'm like don't be don't be scared to say hi if you see me in the you know food store you know Mm -hmm. and so that um and so that's where i start and then um just going in just transitioning from because when i start my story there i let him know um the two sides like um the first side of like uh, being a child to someone who um, I'm an addict, you know, and um, being hit by a drunk driver, you know. So I like to show them two two perspectives, and um, and I'm just real with them. And like I've seen that grown man cry, and ladies, you no know, ladies crying, and it's it's and then people like the, you know afterward like I remember one time like this guy he tried to give me a hundred dollars. He's like, thank you. I'm like, no sir, I don't know, <laughs> no. I mean, it's 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 so it's different. So, so like, cause like, it's in literally anybody who has a driver license get a DUI, right? So I had literally a seventeen year old in there. He was like sitting there crying, and he's like, "Thank you." And so it's different every time, but um, it's it's a very steady reaction. Well, thank you so much for the work you do. That's very impactful. Thank you. Got questions or ideas for the podcast, or perhaps you have your own story to share? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara LaMontagne, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support. 